All right, let's, let's get our Bibles out. Let's get our Bibles out and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. So we're at 2 Samuel chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible, I would strongly encourage you to go over to the resource table and pick one up so you can follow along with us. Uh, we are, if you're visiting, we are going through uh, 2 Samuel. We're nearing the end of our series, and we are at verse 8 today. So we are at 2 Samuel chapter 8, and we're going to pick up at 8, and we'll finish through uh, the chapter. So 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. We'll read the passage as we go along uh, throughout our study today. Uh, before we get started, though, uh, let's pray. Let's pray and ask for God's uh, hand to be upon us uh, during uh, this time. God, we come before you right now. Uh, we acknowledge our, our need of you, even as we just sung, that we want you to be our vision, uh, that we need you to be our vision, and that, Lord, uh, unless you are in this, what we're about to do is a waste of time. It is lacking any uh, kind of power or strength, but because uh, this is your word, because your spirit is amongst us, uh, you can do remarkable things uh, through this moment. So we pray to that end, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so when we talk about being a follower in our culture, in our society, I think it often comes with negative connotations. So you and I, when we're, we're talking to our children, even as parents, one of the first things you tend to do as your kids are getting older and they're very impressionable and they're at school, what do we typically tell them? Don't be a follower. We want you to be a leader. And we, we see the dangers that in this society, in this culture, that there are people that if you're, if you're naive, if you're gullible, if you're uh, potentially at risk of, of kind of being led astray, uh, being led the wrong way. We see the extreme case of that in 1978 with Jim Jones. If you're familiar, that was uh, the leader of a cult that got over 900 people to drink the Kool-Aid literally poisoned Kool-Aid for a mass suicide. So when we think of following, we're so afraid that people might follow the wrong person. But then we turn to the Bible, and there's a lot of talk about following. Uh, Jesus' disciples, guess what they're often called? As Christians, we are called what? Followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, take up your cross, and what word does he use? Follow me. So the act of following, that's not the problem, friends. It's the object of who we follow. That is the issue. That's where the concern lies. Well, in today's passage, we're going to see a text that celebrates following. It celebrates David's most loyal people who faithfully followed their king. And I think what it does, it gives us a glimpse of what it looks like to truly follow the king. But it also gives us a longing for a better king to follow. So we're going to see these amazing exploits and stories. It's a great chapter uh, today for us to spend our time in God's words. And as we look at what it looks like, this call to follow the king, if you're going to take notes. We're going to see three constants. We're going to see three constants with followers of the king. Uh, constant number one, we're going to see that followers demonstrate courage for the king. They demonstrate courage for the king. There's going to be this bravery, uh, this fearlessness amongst David's mighty men that is something to celebrate. It's something to, to follow in our own lives and ultimately to look to Jesus. Uh, second constant we're going to see is followers demonstrate zeal for the king. 
That there is a passion, there's a commitment, there is an all-in element to a follower. There's no such thing as half-hearted following. There's no such thing as an apathetic response to the king. And then we'll wrap up our time as we see followers demonstrate service to the king. That they're available, that they're instruments that are used by God for the good of others and ultimately the glory of his name. So let's pick up at verse 1 as we get started and as we see followers demonstrate courage for the king. Now, as I mentioned, we've been going through First and Second Samuel. It's been a long journey. We had James in the middle of First and Second Samuel. We spent some time at Christmas and at uh, Easter with a, a different passage, but we've been plodding along. We are in our second to last sermon. So Lord willing, next week we will finish up Second Samuel. We will begin May in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is the second time in, in recent time that we have dealt with David's mighty men. Uh, the first go-round, it was in the epilogue as well, we saw that the battle belongs to the Lord. And today we're going to see that David is not alone in the battle as we consider his faithful followers. Well, let's, let's begin our time at verse 8. And I want us to first look at the not mighty men of Israel, or sort of the unmighty men of Israel. Read verse 8 with me. So these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshua Shebeth, a Takamanite, he was the chief of the three. He wielded his sword against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. Before we actually consider these three mighty men that are mentioned here, I want us to look at the not mighty men. I want us to look at uh, those that are not demonstrating the same level of courage and bravery. Notice in verse 9 what it says about the men of Israel. They withdrew. Go down to verse 11. It says, the men fled. And what we've seen, even in First and Second Samuel, that there is a pattern to this kind of behavior amongst the Israelites. If you remember, the first time we really saw it drawn to attention, that was in First Samuel chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. So Goliath is taunting God's army again and again on a daily basis. David end up, ends up coming out there, but in verse 11 it says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 24, they fled from him and were much afraid. So what we see happening amongst God's people at the time is the vast majority of them were afraid. They were fearful. They were anxious. They were worried. It was all about self-preservation. The, the general kind of thought was, if I fight, I will die. I don't want to die, therefore I won't fight. I will preserve myself. 
And we, we kind of see this even in our culture today. It's amazing if you look at a lot of the major cities in the United States right now, there's been an uptake in crime. And not just crime, but pr- crime that is done in a very brazen, very public manner. That there'll be people on public transportation assaulting, robbing people amongst other people. And other people will watch this person being a victim, being criminalized, being assaulted. And they will turn the other way. They will not try to get involved because they want to protect themselves. And that is what is going on, unfortunately, amongst God's people. That there is no loyalty to the king There is no loyalty to the kingdom. It was all about self. We saw this even in the gospel, though, did we not? Jesus, when he's betrayed and they they arrest him, what happens with all the disciples? What do they do? They flee. And then we, we, we know of Peter's denial. John 18, 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are also not one of the man's disciples, are you? And he's looking at a servant girl. And Peter, who is so bold and brave at different times in the gospel, what does he do? He says, I, didn't, I don't even know the guy. He denies him. And I think there's a great danger amongst God's people to be afraid to fear the world, to fear persecution, to be worried about death, to be worried about your your health, your well-being, what might possibly happen. And I think what we end up doing, this is what God's people kind of default towards, is we leave safe, predictable, protected lives where we don't take risks, We don't put ourselves out there. There's no bravery, no courage demonstrated by God's people. Let's be honest with each other right now today. Do you live fearfully like that? Are you quick to withdraw and to flee? Are you worried about life? Are you worried about the world? Are you worried about the future? Because we see this contrast. We see these not mighty men. And let's now look. Let's consider the three men that we just read, the mighty men of Israel. Uh, they have, uh, the status quo then is these cowardly, fearful people. And now we see these men, they, they stand out, hence the title, hence the description, Mighty Men. I don't know if you've ever watched uh, the World's Strongest Man competitions. It, it's, it's quite a sight to behold if you've ever watched them on TV. Like if we were to go right now, there's some people working out upstairs. Every now and then there's some pretty big pretty strong, pretty powerful men that work out at the YMCA. There's those men, and then there's the world's strongest men. The difference is great. I mean, these men, you'll see them on these competitions, they'll be pulling an airplane. Then literally an airplane or a a semi, they'll be uh, throwing boulders that are weighing hundreds of pounds, and you're like, oh my, like that is the difference. And that's kind of what we see here when it comes to courage under pressure amongst these men, the the mighty men. That that the term, the title, the description mighty is well earned by these men. They're bold, they're courageous, they're men of faith. Let's look at the first guy. He is the chief, Joshua Shebeth, a Takamanite. He was chief of the three. So he's number one. He's David's number one guy. And what is his claim to fame that we read about here? One on 800. How do you like them odds? Growing up, loved karate and martial arts. My favorite martial artist, Bruce Lee. 
And if you ever watched any of the Bruce Lee movies, he would often fight multiple people. He'd be one on five, one on ten, one on twenty. And you would watch the movie, and he was so fast, and like, I, yeah, I can see him doing this. I've never seen him go one on 800, though, and this is a movie. This is the real deal. This is what happened with this guy, that he had one person, verse 800, and this was not a movie, and this wasn't a fight. This was a fight to death, and all he had was a spear. He was fearless, and he took out 800. I think of 1 Corinthians 16, 13, when I hear of this guy, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. What does a, a warrior look like? Look at Joshua Beshebeth. So that's guy number one. Guy number two, look at what he says. Uh, he fights to exhaustion, that his hand clung to the sword. It's the idea that they had to pry his fingers off of the sword. He was so exhausted from the fight. This Friday, we have bike-a-thon at my kid's school, and we tend to, we have a big loop at the, at the park that we go to, and we don't have the greatest of confidence in some of our kids, so I tend to get the, the privilege to ride alongside these younger kids. And my one particular kid, uh, by God's grace, is the defending champ for his grade, and he is ambitious this year. He's like, I'm thinking 60 miles, and I'm thinking I'm not walking Saturday. So if next week I'm sitting up here on a stool, but I know at some point in it, I will get my legs will be so, as I'm pedaling, I'll have hardly anything left to pedal. And yet that is what this warrior is like. He fights to the point of exhaustion that there is no give up. There is no quitting on the part of the mighty men of Israel. And then the last one, they're resilient. They stand the ground. Uh, Shama. He's at Lehi, and he has this plot of ground to protect, to stand, to defend, and he stands it no matter who comes his way, Allah, king of the hill, like we talked about last week. He doesn't go anywhere. You see, numbers don't matter. Fatigue doesn't matter. Opposition doesn't matter. And friends, I think we are in a desperate void of that amongst God's people today. And I'm not just talking about, please, Please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying we need a bunch of macho, Rambo-like men in the church. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am challenging is I think we have a, a need for a bunch of godly, faithful, spirit-led men and women who do not back down in the world that we reside in. And I think big picture, too, not just the people that we need, we turn to Jesus. Because, you know, who, who is the mightiest man to ever walk on this earth? It's Christ. Hebrews 12, 2. It says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is courage under fire. Jesus is the example. Jesus is the one who did what you and I could not do. Well, do you need to pray for courage today? Are you weary? Do you need the Spirit's prompt leading and, and power? Are you looking to Jesus? Do you find that there is strength in weakness? Because that's what a follower is. It's, they're, they're courageous. Uh, we saw the mighty versus the not mighty. Well, let's now look at the zeal for the king. 
Let's look at the fervor, uh, the, the passion of the followers, their commitment to their king was extreme. So let's begin, let's pick up, and I love this part of the story, verse 13 to 16. So in three of the 30 chief men, they went down and came about a harvest time uh, to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men, they broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. Now, we need to kind of play a little bit out the context of what's going on. David is in this cave. He's been in caves before, as we've seen in First and Second Samuel. Philistines are between him and his hometown. But we need to understand, we need to really kind of think geographically about this. Imagine in our country how concerning it would be if Kansas got taken over by a rival nation. Why is that a problem? Because you are talking dead center in the middle of our country. And that's kind of what we see going on amongst God's people, you know, amongst the promised land. The Philistines are dead center in the middle. They're not on the outskirts kind of weighing into God's land. No, they're in, in the middle. So David is, is discouraged. Also, we need to understand David is not being a diva. So please don't, don't hear him wrong. David is not like the celebrity that's got a, a, a list of expectations if he's performing at something, that I need the North Dakota blueberries as opposed to the North Carolina blueberries. No, it's, it's not that. He's not saying, man, the water is like so good from Bethlehem. I need a drink from that. I, I'm not drinking your normal bottled water. That's, that's not what is happening. What David is doing is he's longing for a better time. He's longing for peace. He's longing for being in the midst of the promised land. He's longing for home. He, and he just, he, he communicates it. He, he speaks it. And I don't think David at any point when he said that out loud, did he expect what was going to happen next. But sure enough, from their point of view, David, your wish is my command. Now we need to understand. So he goes through this land inhabited and in control with the military of the Philistines. Then he gets to Bethlehem, and at Bethlehem, there is an actual garrison, so of concentrated troops, and then they have to go there. So they have to go through all of that to get to the water. They get to the water, and then what do they do? What do they have to do? Think about this. They don't get to beam themselves up. A helicopter doesn't come along and pull them up. Now they have to go back through the garrison, back through the land, and then finally they're going to arrive back at David. And I think what we see in all of this is zeal for the king. Do you see that? That their passion, that their, their devotion, that their love, that their commitment for the king it really has no ends. That they put themselves in harm's way, risk their lives simply so that David could have a drink of water. Because that's what zeal does. It transforms how you live. Think of John 2.17. Jesus, 
when he goes into the temple and they're, they're exchanging money in his father's house and he flips the tables and you know what the Bible teaches us? Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for the king will consume me. And that's what we see with these men. That these followers of the king are willing to do whatever it takes to please the king. Is there a need of that today amongst God's people? 1885, the Cambridge Seven. They were successful young men, college graduates. Most of them came from prominent families. And they felt a call to the mission field. And when they, they answered that call, God used it mightily, specifically in China. But as they did it, they got a lot of pushback from family and friends. And kind of the general critique of them was, you are a fool. You could have it all. Why would you give it up all for this? Let people who don't have as much, to, and, and they didn't think twice about the perception. Luke 9, 23. says, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Do you have zeal for Christ? And if you say yes... Show me it. Because I think we're really good at talking a good game. I love Jesus. I raise my hands during worship. I do this. I do that. I sing songs all the time. All these things, we kind of look like, look at what I did. Therefore, I'm zealous. And then we look at these men. Was there any question that they were zealous for David? They risked their lives to get him water because that's the king. And we are loyal to the king. Or do you fit Jesus into your life? Are you compelled by Christ? I mean, look at all the Bible characters. Their compulsion for Christ changed everything. Paul is the great example. I, I, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Where is that zeal in our midst? Where is that zeal in our own lives? But not only is it a radical devotion, in this particular case, it is a mis guided devotion. And notice what David does with verse 16. We read it already. Uh, he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now, initially you read this, and let's, let's think about what we think of David in this moment. He seems really what? Un, ungrateful? I mean, like, come on, dude. Like, that was really, that was, that was really nice what they did for you. Like, uh, show some, some gratitude. I mean, imagine uh, that you are just kind of thinking out loud. And let's say you're from somewhere uh, that has a restaurant that we don't have. You're like, man, I so miss this pizza. And one of your friends, one of your family members hear that. They drive three hours they uh, get whatever they do to be able to keep the food kind of warm and fresh. They bring it back to you. You bring it in, and they give it, you give it to them, and then they take it, and they throw it in the trash. 
That's kind of how it feels as we read it. But you know what David is doing? He's not being ungrateful. He's being mindful. And what he's being mindful of is he is not worthy of such devotion. Yes, he's anointed. He is, the, he is the king by God's hand. So there is a sense where the devotion to the king is good because he is Jesus, or he's, he's the forerunner to Jesus. He is, he is God's anointed. But there's a sense because David is not the Messiah, there's a flawed nature. And we've seen the flawed nature, have we not? Of, of David. And David was aware of it. Even earlier on, Psalm 51, 5, I was born, bring, brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. So what we see is a savior is needed even for David. And David is aware of how unworthy he is. And because of that, I think a grave danger amongst us in the church is we, have, we esteem and value man sometimes a little too high. We fall in love with our favorite author, our favorite online preacher, even on the local context. And I'm not saying that that men and women of God can't be held at a higher esteem who God has called and set into the ministry, and they really should. But there's a difference between esteeming them and worshiping them and following them. And David had an awareness of that, that what are you doing? You remember John and his disciples, when Jesus came on this scene, his disciples got very jealous of who? Jesus. And they said, they're following Jesus. And John said in verse 28 of John chapter 3, I am not the Christ. I've been sent before him, but he must increase while I decrease. So don't uh, put your devotion towards the wrong people. But then also, I think as we consider that David is not worthy, guess who is worthy? Jesus. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were, were created. So because of Jesus' worthy, worthiness, his, a radical life for him is, it makes sense, right? It, he's, he's worth it. So as these Cameron 7 were critiqued by family and friends, you're a fool, you could have it all. From their perspective, I already do have it all because I have Christ and I'm committed to him. That it's really the the greatest commandment in fulfillment, right? What's the greatest commandment? Love God with what? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Doesn't that sound like zeal? Doesn't that sound like a, a commitment Well, one, do you make too much of man? Are you devoted to the wrong people, the wrong things, the wrong causes? And do you see the worthiness of Christ? Does your heart overflow overflow with, with a passion for Christ? I think kind of big picture, friends, if you are struggling with zeal for Jesus, I think probably part of the problem is you're not spending much time reflecting on Jesus. So that would be my my troubleshooting solution for you. Take some time reflecting on Christ. Because I think when you reflect on Christ and he begins to shine, as you begin to see how worthy he is, the, the overflow of that is to follow after him. All right, so uh, we saw courage, uh, the not mighty versus the mighty. We saw zeal, the radical, but a little misguided devotion amongst these men. Lastly, I want us to see the service to the king Specifically, that these men are instruments of the Lord. And notice that each is given a role. 
Uh, Read verse 18 to 38 with me. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruah, was chief of the 30, and he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Gabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, one and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the 30. And David set him over his bodyguard. Uh, Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elahan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah of Herod. Uh, Elika of Herod. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh of Dekoa. Abizar of Anathoth. Uh, Benuna, the Hishathite. Zalman, the, the Ahoathite. Uh, Mahari of Netophah. Uh, Helab, the son of Baanah of Netophah, uh, Ittai, the son of Rebai of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Parathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gaash, Abi Albin, uh, the Arbathite, Asmaveth of Bahiram, Eliabah, the Shalabanite, the son of Jashan, Jonathan, Shama the Herathite, Ahiam, the son of Shera the Herathite, Elizabethet, the son of Ahazbai, of Maakai, Alaliam, the son of Ahithophel of Gilo, Hezra of Carmel, Paariah, the Arbite, Egal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gedite, Zelik, the Ammonite, Nahari of Beeroth, the armbearer of Joab, the son of Zeruah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerob, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Notice the distinction made amongst these men. Now, there's a lot of Hall of Fames out there. And what we typically have with a Hall of Fame is the best of the best get in for whatever it is, be it sports, be it music, uh, whatever the field is, it's, it's that place. But if you've ever been to these Hall of Fames, there's those that are in it, and there are those that are like the best in it. A lot of them don't have like a special wing, but I mean, think about it with basketball. There's a bunch of guys that have played and women who have played in and are in the Basketball Hall of Fame. But then there's a few people that were better than everybody. But the thing is, they're all in the hall, right? So Michael Jordan, yeah, he's one of the best ever, kind of the GOAT, greatest of all time. But then there's people that were really good. They were some of the best in their career time, but they're, they're not. They're not Michael Jordan. And what we see here in this list of mighty men is there are some that are really remarkable. I mean, number one takes 800 men out. And yet each person is in there. They're they're unique. Uh, Their resumes are unique. They all did their part. Specifically in David's success, he is the result of all of these men. I think we need to realize that. That God has given us people. That God has not left us to our own. 
that God has not uh, put us in a situation and in an environment where we're a bunch of isolated lone rangers. Ecclesiastes 4.12. It says, Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The reality is we need each other. And that's really, I would argue, and Pastor Andy and the rest of the elders, we would argue, that's part of the reason for the church, the local church, is that you would have a family, that you would have a community of believers that you get to live life with. I mean, that's why we stress church membership. We don't require it. There's many of you here who come pretty regularly that are not members, and that's your choice. But we encourage it because we want you to be actively plugged into the life of the church. That you need each other, and we need you. We want you to live. One of the reasons, I'll be very selfish, we plug life groups, is we want you to be connected in the body in that sense. Like, I love my group that we got together in this week, and some people were gone out of town. Somebody had a, a, an injury, was able to come, so it was a smaller group. But it was great to hang out, to spend time praying for one another, to spend time in God's Word, to just spend time fellowshipping and eating Rice Krispie treats. I mean, that's Christian life. And what we see with these mighty men is they all played a part. Some were more prominent. We read a list of names that we don't hear hardly any of their exploits, but yet they're part of the mighty men. Friends, that's the body of Christ, is it not? 1 Corinthians twelve fourteen, The body does not consist of one member of men, but many. If the foot should say, behold, I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, what would it make? Uh, it, would it make it any less a part of the body? Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, remember when he's talking about the other men who have done work like him, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And these men are celebrated in God's words for serving and being used and being available to the Lord. So are you a part of the body? Are you available to be used by God? What role do you play? Where do you fit in? Because everybody here is unique. I mean, even this morning as I'm, as I'm in my, my study and I'm, I'm praying and preparing to come here and to, to preach God's word, it is such a privilege that I get to do this. And I don't just say that to, to sound humble, because half the time I'm not humble, but it really is. This is a remarkable opportunity that I get to sit before God's, or stand before God's people and preach his word. And we all get these opportunities. Maybe it's not Sunday morning in a, from a pulpit setting, but you, you get opportunities to be used by God. You get to be the mom in your family. You get to be the dad in your family. You get to be that friend in your friend's circle. You get to be that business owner. You get to be that coworker. You get to be that coach. You get to be that teacher. Whatever it is, God has you where you are, and you get to be used by him. Isn't that awesome? But not just that each is given a role. Here's the key. God is given the glory. I didn't make much of a fuss of it as we were reading through. But look at verse 10. What does it say? And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Go to verse 12. The Lord worked a great victory. You see, God is glorified. That refrain, actually, if, if, if the writer of Samuel wanted to be repetitive after every person, whether it was beating the 800 or the guy who beat lions and Egyptian male models— 
Because you remember it said he was the handsome guy. Like regardless of what the victory, every single one it could have said what? And the Lord gave him a great victory. Why is it great? Because all of these victories, if you really start getting your mind around it, they're supernatural. Beating eight, killing 800 men, one man, that is not normal, okay? Because it's God who did it. It's always God. You see, these men are mighty because God is what? Mighty. These men are great. Why? Because God is great. John 15, 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. But apart from you, from me, you can do nothing. So don't be in awe of these men, but be in awe of God that he uses men. That's really the remarkable part. So friends, God gets to use you. You're available. You get to play your part. And when God does, give him the praise. Because it's not something that you should be patting yourself on the back for. So not only is God glorified, God is gracious. Go back to verse 39. I think there's an intent. There's a purposefulness on why this is where it is. Look at what's on, who's on the list. Uriah the Hittite. Have we heard that name before? Kind of a monumental figure in First and Second Samuel, right? He's the husband of Bathsheba that David had an affair with, got her pregnant, and then had Uriah murdered to try to cover his tracks of his unfaithfulness. So one, that should shock us that David probably knew who Bathsheba was before he ever did what he did. It was one of his mighty men, one of his most loyal men. But I think also, and I think the reason it's here at the end of verse 39 is not that just God is simply glorified. God is gracious. Is he not? God is gracious. That God had forgiven David that God was still going to have a son sit on the throne after David, Allah, Jesus Christ, even though David was who he was. Psalm 86:15 You O Lord are a God who is merciful and gracious abounding in love and in steadfast love and faithfulness. Cuz the truth is you and I regardless of how mighty we are we get to be on the list used by God and we're just as scandalous as David. Do you understand that? As we read the list and we see our name he's like Joe Hillary oh. Are you sure you want him on your list? And that's the same for all of us. There's a scandal because why? Because we're sinners. We're flawed. We are a mess. We're like David, and yet God does not. He's not worried about his PR. He's not insecure about our doubts and fears or sin. He, he has right there in the midst. Yeah, yeah, David, think about it. I mean, this, that, that sin plagues him for the rest of his life till he dies. There's a, there's a football player, I'll always remember his name. It was when I was growing up. He missed a kick that would have won the Super Bowl. Scott Norwood. I mean, we're talking 25 years ago, give or take. I don't know the exact number. It's, it's been a while. Even to this day, wherever he goes, if he says his name, it haunts him. And he talked about it. He's had to go to counseling and therapy. because that, that, that was just a mistake on the football field. 
We're talking about a sin that was so grave, and yet God forgives his grace and his mercy seem to hold no ends. I think we have a, a commitment crisis in our, our culture today. Now, as I say that, I understand as I go through some examples of this commitment crisis, there are a lot of variables that everything is not black and white, not simple, so you don't need to come talk to me afterwards and say, but there's reasons for this. Get the point. The point is there's a commitment crisis in our culture. Look at divorce numbers. Keep going up, or people just don't get married because they don't even want to commit at all, let alone commit to then get divorced. Like, I just won't commit. I mean, there's, there's crisis there. There's crisis within work. People would grow up. Now, mind you, we're in a, a different world, but they would stay at one company and, and work there till retirement. Now people are constantly moving, constantly at church as a pastor. People constantly uproot. They, they get comfortable at a church for a few years. Like now it's, it, it's, it's, there's a new, cool, exciting one. We'll move there. And then just, it's this constant thing uh, within in the world. There's just, there's not commitment. Uh, there's not passion, I would argue. Amongst most people, I think most people are just kind of apathetic and indifferent towards life. And I think there is any commitment, if there's any real passion, it's for self. It's for comfort. It's for pleasure. And I, I think if that is our culture, where there's a lack of, of true commitment, should we be surprised that there's very little commitment amongst God's people? I think there's a devotion uh, vacuum amongst followers of Christ. We've grown very tepid in faith. Remember the church of Laodicea, the indictment that he had for them. I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you either be cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I think if God was to, to come to this world and, and, and to really kind of honestly assess that this is going to be an unfortunate, radical uh, rebuke currently, this is it. That there is this lack of, of zeal and commitment and favor in following the king. But you know, the biggest problem in all of this, friends, is not that there's a lack of this, but Christ is worthy of so much more. Do you understand that? We sang it last week. Is he worthy? And then we sing a bunch of things that he is. At the end of the day, that Jesus is, is worthy. He is, he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our commitment. And that's why this passage, it's a call for a radical commitment to follow Jesus because any other kind of committing makes no sense at all. So friends, I think we do need to have that heart to heart. We need to look in the mirror and we have to ask ourselves, am I following Christ? Because he's worthy of that kind of following. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come before you right now. We acknowledge how often we are lukewarm and tepid in our faith that our, our passions, our commitments are often to earthly, trivial matters, or even worse, they're to ourselves, that we love ourselves rather than you. So I pray, God, for anybody here today that 
honestly feels convicted as a result of this text. And as they, they look at their life and they feel a sense of apathy and indifference, I pray that you would renew them. That you might restore to them the joy of their salvation. I pray even bigger picture in our congregation that you would bring revival, that you would bring an awakening amongst us, that we would be a people, that we would be men and women and children, that as the world looks at us, not for the sake of being showy, but just because of how we live and and, and the way we are, that the world would look at us as fools for the sake of Jesus. May he get all the glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand?